So one of the major features of this critical theory seminar is our rather abrupt jumps between texts uh, and just in terms of their difference. Of course, we started with Barbara Christian's Race for Theory essay, a short essay, but I think very provocative, which was also a part of our discussion of Audre Lorde's uh, poetics and uh, Barbara Christian's own kind of development or suggestion of a development out of those poetics. Then we moved to Harold Bloom's Anxiety of Influence, which was paired with a couple of short pieces by Leopold Senghor. And now we move to two essays by Martin Heidegger, The Origin of the Work of Art and Building Dwelling Thinking. These abrupt jumps are, in a certain sense, uh, random and just a part of the course. I mean, we move uh, between texts um, and they're very different. This is not a course on one single theme. It's an introductory uh, graduate seminar on critical theory. So I wanted to have some expanse, some geographic diversity, and some diversity of ideas. And certainly in these opening three, Christian, Bloom, uh, Bloom, Senghor, and uh, Heidegger, we already have a massive uh, difference in approaches, in geographies, and in sensibilities. But it's not just the nature of the introductory course that makes me uh, move sort of abruptly between texts. Uh, that abrupt movement is done really more deeply for two reasons. First of all, we have threads that move between clusters of texts. And I want to say something about that in a moment as I start uh, a little bit of a conversation about Heidegger. But also because this introduction to critical theory is comparativist by nature. And the only way we do comparison is to set up juxtapositions and what uh, may seem like, and maybe in the end are, uh, massive leaps between ideas and geographies. But when we make those leaps, of course, there's uh, the work of, of asking, like, what did it mean to move from Christian to Bloom, from Bloom to Senghor, from Senghor and Bloom to Heidegger? I'm thinking, uh, actually, of the description of the bridge in Building Dwelling Thinking, where, where you know, Heidegger uh, asserts, argues if you want to say it, asserts or describes the sense in which uh, the bridge across a river actually makes a locale. And if we think about comparative work happening in locales, it's going to be those moments of bridge work, right? That we can have two sides of a river, right? We can have Christian and we can have Bloom, or we can have Heidegger and we can have Senghor. Or we can talk about what kinds of bridges are built, not that make them the same, but that make some sort of connection or draw them into a common locale. And when I think about that notion of a locale and drawing into a common space, that for never, never for me is about identifying um, similarities or samenesses, but rather thinking about productive senses of tension. Those productive senses of tension can really go in multiple directions. One is when, you know, when there's a relationship of tension and one has a stronger sort of ethical or political pull for us, it has the result of, of dismantling the interior elements of a particular thinker that we find problematic. I would say, for example, that's what I wanted us to get, at least in part, out of the, the 
connection between uh, Bloom and Senghor, right? It's not a connection that's actually literary. It's not in the text, but it's one that we can do in our thinking. And what that does for me is sort of decolonize, not sort of, it actually does decolonize this notion of the family scene in uh, questions of influence and, and strong writing or strong thinking. And that is a way then that the juxtaposition of the two is not sort of here's an African thinking, uh, you know, anticipating because he's written during colonialism. The Senghor pieces are an African thinking about what is it going to be like after colonialism. That is in no way the same as Bloom's uh, articulation of the structure of strong poets and their predecessors or precursors. Um, but these notions of influence, of parasite, of paternal relations, I think uh, actually once we move the geography a little bit and start to think about that tension between Senghor and Bloom, we can start to see how anxiety of influence can be recalibrated, retooled, reconfigured, creolized, however one wants to talk about it, uh, to, to actually describe what might be anti-colonial writing? Like, what does it mean to confront and overcome the colonizer? Perhaps a sort of bastardization of Bloom would accomplish that kind of work. So in that way, for me, the, the points of tension between uh, weeks in this course, between texts in this course, has that, can have that effect of hollowing out some of the things that strike us as deeply problematic about one text and not about another. Put them in tension and both texts start to, th I think, look a little bit different. And that looking a little bit different is also, for me, the second part of putting things in tense relation. That is, when we hollow out, we decolonize, we recalibrate, etc., a text that we might find problematic, but interesting or intriguing. That for me is always Harold Bloom. I find his work extremely intriguing, extremely interesting, and extremely problematic. But when we address in tension between texts this uh, what's problematic, I think that we can also start to draw out what remains interesting about it and what can travel across geographies and intellectual space. Um, for me, that's always going to be what comparative work is about. Sometimes comparative work is about uh, dismantling. Sometimes comparative work is about retrieval. And the relationship between retrieval and dismantling for me is um, intimate, right? I think that they, they need each other. That what's the point of dismantling, right? Of critique for the, for the sake of critique, perhaps. But I'm interested in how dismantling ends up unlocking elements of promise in a text, right? Or, or something that can be remade in another geography, travel to that geography, and help us see things in new ways or give us um, uh, more robust, broader, critical vocabularies. Is my contention, and not everybody feels this way, but I may as well say it, that the more critical vocabulary we have, the better. I, I just think we cannot have too many words for things. Nobody thinks we have enough words for things in literature, so why would we want that in critical theory? So the production of vocabulary for me is, is critical theory in its comparative context at its very best. And in that spirit, uh, Heidegger put Heidegger on this uh, syllabus for this week. A lot of what I wanted to do in thinking the sequence that we've had so far of Christian, Bloom, Senghor, and Heidegger is thinking about the question of tradition. 
its unity, its disunity, its absence, its presence, its burden, its liberation. Because questions of tradition are never straightforward. They're never simple. Because traditions are never unified, and one cannot talk about the tradition or a tradition in any general sense, right? That different traditions emerge at different times under different social, political, memorial, historical conditions. And always seeing that, right, the way uh, traditions emerge and, and are transformed or fall apart is for me absolutely crucial when we're thinking uh, in a comparative context. And so the Christian piece, of course, is a story about tradition uh, as in its inception. She has those, those comments about how the black feminist uh, critical theory tradition doesn't exist, but she's calling for it. And that essay, I would say, is the beginnings of an exercise in black feminist literary and cultural uh, uh, critical theory. Um, of course, Bloom is about exactly tradition in its broad, deep, unified sense with its sort of uh, Promethean origin of uh, Shakespeare in that book. I mean, he revises that later. Um, but thinking about all the poets and their relationships to each other as forming a tradition, but a forming a tradition that is obsessed with parasitical acts as a sign of originality. Senghor, of course, in some ways very much like Christian, thinking about African literature as the beginning of a tradition, but also thinking older than uh, either Bloom or Christian, and in a different register about African literary expression and cultural production, when he talks about uh, oral uh, literatures and the need or, or the use of finding ways of transcribing those, turning them into school books and making them part of education systems, which then calcify a tradition in institutions. With Heidegger, I think there are lots of interesting ways of talking about tradition. When we talk about the origin of the work of art essay, it's a, an essay about how deeply modernity and when we talked about modernity in the course, we talked about its relationship to technology, to calculative reason, and the reduction of space to its, its sort of Newtonian or plotted elements. The idea of space as a container, the idea of, of space as something that's mathematizable. And when we think about space in that way, we can think about the kinds of things that the tradition has lost. What has the tradition, and the tradition here meaning the Western European tradition, what has the tradition lost? That's, for me, the, 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 the energy behind building dwelling thinking. That building dwelling thinking has its own kind of hermetic, solitary, wandering, it's sort of a warm-hearted... Uh, Nietzsche, right? The way Nietzsche's uh, heroes, especially Zarathustra, just have this sort of lone wolf wandering. And Heidegger uh, has that, but without some of the, the melodrama uh, of Zarathustra in terms of slaying beasts and so on. But when we think about building dwelling thinking, one of the ways, the major frame I read it in is his confrontation with modernity and it's how modernity has fundamentally changed our relationship, of course, to the gods and sky, the two, two of the parts of the fourfold, which I'll talk about in, again in a moment, but primarily the other two elements of the fourfold, which are mortals and earth. 
And so when he talks in, in that essay, and this is the part that really intrigues me so much, and, and I make such a big deal out of it, is when he thinks about what it means to have a, uh, a, a dwelling, right? It means to have a home, right? His cabin in the Black Forest made out of the trees of the forest and what it means to think about one's own death and burial in a coffin made from the same wood from the same forest as the home, the same trees that surround the home and anchor themselves in the earth that one walks. And there's this kind of intimacy, again, to use that word, kind of intimacy then between our own embodiment our embodiment both as as we move and as we touch as we smell uh, as we walk as we press on the earth as we press on 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 what surrounds us there's a relationship between that that sense of our embodiment to the world and our mortality because it's precisely our embodiment that marks us as mortals that marks us as as uh, finite beings setting aside of course all the religious questions of afterlife right as i said in class you know when if we're going to think about you know death as transition then we're not really in some ways talking about death that heidegger's conception of the mortal is really the mortal right the one who actually dies not the one who transitions to another form of life how to think this part of heidegger these two elements of the fourfold of earth and um, mortality or mortals, earth and mortals, how to think that in a context where, where death is considered a transition to another phase of life, I think that requires some creative work. Not that it's not possible, but that one really has to think hard about the word mortality because death for, for Heidegger, it only has its profundity when it's the end. Right. And, and if it's just a transition, then going back to Nietzsche, you know, then are we are we even talking about life? <laughs> are we even talking about death? Or are we talking about something altogether different? But when we think then about this notion, these notions of, of earth and mortals and the problem of dwelling in that space, that unlocks for me the the depth and scope and profundity and and really expansive possibilities of Heidegger's early notions of, of uh, ready to hand, right? What it means for any being in, the, uh, in, in our world, in our environment, anything in our environment has relations to other things that makes it a thing. Right, this famous example of the hammer. The hammer is not an object in Newtonian or plottable or mathematizable space. The hammer's meaning, right? Its meaning and sense is precisely its capacity to have those relationships to surfaces, to nails, to human action, to again building, right? Building in this case a dwelling. So thinking about how things in that sense uh, are verbal rather than uh, objectified, right? Rather than, than inert in space, right? That just, just simply plotted on a, on, a, on a line of a graph of a container we call space. Rather than that, there's this verbal sense of the thing. You know, and, and the, the strange phrase that, of course, everyone always comes in when they read this essay for the first time, like, what does it mean that the thing thinks? This drives, you know, every first reader insane. 
But the thing things precisely to remind us that what we're calling an object is an action, is a relation. And that sense of relationality opens up a whole new possibility of relationship to self and world. And that relationship of self and world becomes in this moment of taking it seriously in its verbal sense, in its pre or post, however we want to think about it, technology and Newtonian or Kantian space, getting outside those, those habits of modernity, we, when we start to think about things in that way, we open up this deeper possibility of, of dwelling, right? That, we ha- that, that indicates how we have a completely different relationship to the things that surround us than instrumentalization. That things around us only have use value when we fundamentally demean the earth, when we fundamentally degrade things and turn them into instruments. With the thing things, that means that we dwell with those things and that action with things, right? whether it's, it's the hammer that helps build the home, the saw that cuts the wood, the stove that burns the wood to keep us warm. When we start to think about ourselves in relation to that, in, a, in, a, in that active sense, that deep transcendent, transcending existential sense, all of a sudden our entire world looks different. Right? We don't stand apart from it, we stand in this relation, right? And it's relation sort of in all caps because it's an irreducibility of that thing of relation. But for Heidegger, this is a movement against modernity. So it's a movement here that's uh, transformative of our own embodiment and our own relation to the world. He doesn't really talk about it so much in terms of embodiment, but I want to introduce that term. As well, when we liberate thingness from its isolation in space, the modern, the Kantian, the Newtonian, the Galilean, the mathematizable sense of space, then we start to look at, you know, and this is going backwards in time, right, to the origin of the work of art, uh, building, dwelling, thinking, I think it's 1950 or thereabouts, Right, but going back to, to the origin of the work of art from the 1930s, you know, 12, 15 years earlier, this idea of, a, of thingness liberated from its isolation in space is exactly when we start to look at the work of art differently. And, you know, the, maybe his most famous example in the uh, basic writings edition uh, of the origin of the work of art essay uh, on page 159 where he talks about Van Gogh's uh, painting of shoes of peasant shoes and what it means for those shoes to have or to not have dirt on them right for them to be wrinkled because they were fitted to a particular foot right to be you know uh, set in a certain way on the um, on the floor right in relation to the door in relation to the interior of the home all of these things are ways that the painting is trying to put the shoes or can try if 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 it's if it's executed in this way try to put things in motion even though by virtue of the fact that it's a painting they are not in motion but the motion there is not a, a movement in newtonian space the movement is our uh, is is our engagement with the indicator 
that the painting is, that the shoes are in the painting, that they indicate a sense of relatedness that, again, points us both before and after the shoes that we are seeing. Inside and outside the frame, senses of motion and relationality that are inseparable from the very meaning of the shoes, right? That they, they are or are not work shoes, that they are or are not shoes worn on a muddy day, right? All of these relationships to earth, all of these, again, also relationships to our own mortality, right? The way our shoes uh, carry us across the earth, right? That is, allow us to exist in human time. And it's exactly existing in that human time that our own mortality has meaning and sense. But in that way, again, uh, Heidegger is always arguing against modernity, right? That Heidegger is always arguing for this transformation of our relationality and our relation to the earth. Because as he says in the building dwelling thinking, right? He says, you know, there's a, a housing shortage just post-World War II and there's just not a, enough places for uh, people to live. And he says, we have this housing shortage. So again, what they are doing is just building apartment building after apartment building after apartment building. And he says, that's great. That's important. We, we People obviously need places to live, but we don't build dwellings, right? We don't build to dwell. We build to house. And when we build the house, we are... You know, and you think about what apartment buildings are, right? They're, they're identic identical uh, apartment spaces, right? And often identical buildings in a row. And that sense of uniformity and efficiency is exactly modernity's intervention in our sense of where we live, in our abode, in our house, right? In our home. That doesn't dwell because it doesn't set us in relation. It sets us actually isolated, in some fundamental ways. So dwelling then becomes a resistance to that, right? But also for me, then the origin of the work of art is important because that's where we get to see the significance of the sky and the mortal, or sorry, the sky and the God, gods, I should say. And, you know, this gets me back to questions of tradition, that when Heidegger is uh, talking about tradition, he's talking about how modernity has fundamentally uh, disrupted Western Europe's relationship to what was wise about ancient Greece, that what was possible in ancient Greek has been lost in the translation, right, of the Greek word, of the Greeks dwelling into modernity's uh, perversion of exactly that those senses of transcendence and turning them into what we might call relations of imminence right or plottable lines on in space or efficient models of housing and so forth so when he talks then about the work of art and talks about the greek temple this is where the essay gets really interesting to me I think that when he's talking about Van Gogh's shoes and the way that the shoes put us into the sense of relation, right? The way the shoes dwell in, in a dwelling, or you know, they're they're in a they're built for a dwelling, uh, and I, I think that's a really great continuity between the two essays. But when he talks about the Greek temple, that's where for me he his commentary on the 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 meaning of tradition is dispiriting, but also profound and really important. 
because when he's talking about the Greek temple, it's a space where the gods no longer gather. And so this space, right, of the Greek temple, when we, you know, if we were to go there as tourists, we stand in it, but the, the god doesn't appear, right? The god doesn't, isn't summoned by the temple. And that's because we have lost that sense of the temple as a dwelling, as well as the god has lost that sense of the temple as dwelling. So we don't dwell in the temple with the gods. What we instead do is dwell is, is stand in the temple as a space where we project a really impotent and inadequate sense of memory. An impotent and inadequate sense of relation to the past that is proper to the temple. I thought that this was really interesting then in class how once we sort of moved that out into the open, right, started to think about the temple, that, you know, we, it allowed us to start thinking about um, curated spaces. You know, we talked about museums. We talked about the quilts from, from Guy's Bend, as well as, um, uh, as, well as uh, the, the fragments from slave ships. Uh, in the basement uh, beginning rooms of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. I think that those examples were really important because part of the work of curation is to, in this Heideggerian language, to try to create a sense of continuity and evocative relationship between, you know, a temple, right, which is the, the quilt, that tells a story about slavery or about lynching, right? And, and about the, the, the pain, suffering, and survival, and world-making in the wake of that or in the midst of that. What does it mean then to move that to a gallery space where, where you know, we stand there with, you know, a, a little plastic cup of wine and contemplate it? Right. What does it mean to stand in that space in the, the National uh, uh, Museum of African American History and Culture and see fragments of, of, of a slave ship, to hear the sound of water, to read the words of, of survivors of the Middle Passage talking about it, um, as well as abolitionist critics of it. What does it mean for that space to be curated in a way that tries again to make us to, to give us that sense of a connection to the transcendent, that sense of a connection to, to the God of memory, right? The God of, of, of the divinity of, the, of what doesn't gather in the sense that we are not in the ship, but maybe gathers in, in its stead, in, in, you know, instead in of the ship, what gathers is the felt memory, right? But that's the task of the curator. And I find that to be a really interesting and really, uh, I don't know what quite what the word is. I've been looking for the word for years. It's distressing in a certain sense. I do find it distressing that, that we curate these spaces and perhaps they trick us into a sense of identification, right? And that's problematic, right? Um, we could also think of other things like the, you know, at the uh, Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Uh, I think it's part of the permanent exhibit, but when, the, the first time I went there, I remember they, they had this pile of children's shoes. 
and the way, and they also gave you a passport uh, that you would then navigate the museum, and at the end, you they tell you whether you survived or died in a in a concentration camp. These these moves towards drawing in your identification that are fabricated and curated, and have to be brought under a certain kind of of critical lens. I actually think that Heidegger helps us think about these questions with a critical lens because that critical and, and what that critical lens is is something that revolves around um, a critical lens that revolves around the question of modernity and the way modernity I think one of its features Heidegger is underscoring modernity has this, this impulse to make everything available and imminent and consumable and that the Greek temple is a particularly important example for him partly because he has this like you know like pathological fetish for the ancient Greeks right pre-Socratic Greeks that's just to me is always weird uh, other people really love it um, I find it uh, strange but so part of it's about that that relationship he has to to the pre-Socratic Greeks and he imagines that Western Europe has to the ancient Greeks but I also think that he's trying to tell us a story about the rights modernity tries to take around everything being available and taking us to a spot where we can't but understand that the gods don't gather there, that divinity does not intervene in the temple, that we don't summon the gods when we walk into the temple. Their absence is the, the gap between us and modernity and the pre-Socratic uh, presence of the divine. So then I think about that in relationship, and we talked about this in class, uh, in relationship to, to other forms of curation. And what does it mean to think about our feeling of right, or even our feeling of, of a successful summoning of the God, or the gods, right? That the meaning, in this case, and the memory of slavery, of lynching, of the Holocaust, you know, uh, Maya Lin's memorial, you know, the pain of war. What does it mean to, to imagine that we feel that? And who is it who imagines that they feel that? And who is it that has a different felt relationship to those memorial sites? Heidegger's talking about the expanse of time, right? 2,500 years. So yes, that's it. in some ways like he's given himself a very easy task, right? Here's a temple. No one believes in the, in the Greek gods and therefore they don't. They don't summon because we also don't have the words to to gather them in this space but i think we can say the same about these memories of atrocity and these memories of broken uh relation that are so important and play or you know that not play but function as ghostly presences in the world but if those are ghostly presences in the world then they function kind of like the, the divine. They function kind of like the gods, and they either do or do not gather. And we have to, un I think we have to ask ourselves after Heidegger, after these essays, or what I think these essays help us think about, is the limits of our capacity to summon the gods in a space that is not proper to the gods, right? That is, uh, without that living relation through whether it's through language or through memory and historical experience you know 
when are we positioned at a distance from that ghost, from that God? And when are we positioned in a way to hear that ghost, to hear that God? And what does it mean to prepare ourselves to enter that space? And what kind of presumptions do we have when we don't prepare ourselves, but nevertheless enter that space with the presumption that we will feel the God, that we will feel the ghost, that we will know the presence of the divine and of a memory? This is really also then, to put it another way, is a question for me of, of our participation in atrocities against memory, atrocities against the sacred and atrocities against the divine. Because the divine and the sacred are often connected to memory, especially memories of, of, of massive historical trauma that tr transform, uh, either eliminate or create new a people. And that's really what Heidegger is concerned about, right? Is Western Europe is adrift because it cannot summon the ancient Greek gods to the temple. For him, that's a crisis for European uh, uh, identity in the future, right? That's the part, if we're thinking about, for me, thinking about Heidegger and National Socialism, which we talked extensively about in class, these are one of these moments where I see him making this argument in part because he's trying to, he's an anti-modern thinker about European identity and wants to preserve it and sees it rooted in the ancient Greeks. So that part I have a lot of thoughts about, right, that are deeply critical and, and um, you know, for a lot of people quite extreme, but for me just, just pointedly very critical. But Heidegger, nevertheless, in that moment is outlining something that I think we see at work in all of these other moments because he is articulating a form of how things gather to places and how we have fantasies of them gathering, right? That the transcendent gathers or an imminence gathers. And when an imminence gathers, when, when, it's, when it's transparent to us, that's the gesture of modernity, which is a gesture of violence. That for me is worth retrieving in Heidegger what it means and what are the preparations and conditions under which a transcendence can be gathered to that space, whether it's in the basement of the museum, the wall of the gallery, right, the slab of concrete with the names of, of the fallen in Vietnam, right, what it means to, 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 to summon, the, summon transcendence there, who can, under what conditions and in what way, what are the ethics and politics of that moment. I think that grows in really interesting ways out of Heidegger. And it also for me, because all of this is tied up with uh, questions of, of, of national and uh, racial identity, and this is a theme that we've already talked about in previous classes, we'll talk about in later courses, right? This is exactly where it becomes very, um, I mean, we ought to have a lot of pause, right? When somebody like Heidegger in the wake of World War II and Germany's consecutive defeats in World Wars and World Wars, um, and the isolation of Germany and the, you know, the um, finally, you know, Europe disarming Germany after World War II and the denazification proceedings. And when Heidegger's like, well, we're, we're, we're adrift, we've lost our identity, we need to go back to the ancient Greeks, like, put a question mark by that, all right? Interrogate that critically and frankly, avoid it. It's deeply problematic and leads only to the worst things. But that argument is taking place in a, in a, in a logic and in, in a critical theory frame that for me is super interesting and I think is productive in other contexts. But also, again, 
and this is something we'll carry across the semester. The lesson that we learned from Heidegger about how this kind of idea of of, of, of a critique of modernity and eminence and setting conditions or imagining conditions where the transcendent can be summoned and therefore connect us to questions of tradition, therefore questions of identity and, and, and identification. We also always have to wonder about the impulses that come along with that towards nationalism, towards exclusion, right, towards uniformity and towards the elimination of difference, the exact things that animated uh, Heidegger's commitments to national socialism, right, that's national socialism. That also means that it's all inherent, at least in part, in the method of the origin of the work of art in building dwelling thinking. It's inherent in those spaces, or sorry, it's inherent in that conceptual frame and approach, the risk of nationalisms, the risk of, 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 of ethno-nationalism, of exclusion, of reduction of difference to the same. And so we also have to carry that skeptical question with us while also asking who sees the transcendent meaning in the, the quilt, in the piece of wood from the slave ship, in the memorial, in the temple, and so on.